0: This Lent, we follow a small group Bible study called Being Challenged, and our sermons will accompany the weekly lessons. Unfortunately, the past week, we had some rough weather. Some groups have begun. But this week, uh, the theme is Commit to Community. Go ahead and take a look at the picture there. Look closely. How many of you see an older woman? How many you see a younger woman? How am we not sure what you're seeing? No, it's okay. Actually, it's an optical illusion. Now, there is an older woman there. There's a younger woman there. How do you figure it out? Well, look at the center circle. You will see an older woman and her left eye is looking at you. She has a big nose. Or if you see a younger woman, her face is turned away and the dot is her ear. So that's how I usually see it. Matter of fact, um, if you focus just on that, you'll be able to flip back and forth. But I'm just not here to explain to you this optical illusion. I wanted to tell you some research that was done with it. They took a man, put him in a room, and they asked him, they showed him this p- picture and asked him what he saw, and he said, well, I see an older woman. And with him were eight people in the room, and they said, no, you're wrong, there's a younger woman there. And he said, no, I see the older woman, I can point out the nose to, to her and the wrinkles in her face, and definitely old, and the other eight said, Nope, there's only the younger woman there, and she, her face is turned away, you can't see that at all. They continued to talk to him. The eight convinced him that there was only the younger woman there, took him out of the room and took him into another room with ten people and showed him the same picture. What do you see? And he said that time, well, I'll go along with the new, with the younger woman. And the ten there said, nope, there's only the older woman there. Don't you see her big nose? Don't you see the wrinkles in her eyes? And they convinced him that only the older woman was there. They took him into another room with 12 people and showed him the same picture. And this time he said, well, I'm not sure what I see. Because the first group said, I don't know, a younger woman. The second group said an older woman, whatever. And now I'm not sure what I see. And they convinced him that there were two women there. He just had to look at it differently. And so no matter what he said, the group convinced him of the others. The point of the research was that the man by himself had to succumb. He had to surrender to the will of the group. And they did that all the way until 20 people in the room. And the people that were there were really plants. They were actors who were sent there to confuse him. Because the reality is, friends in Christ, that oftentimes we give in to the crowd. You don't have to raise your hand, but have you ever given in to the crowd? Have you ever done something that you know was wrong and not right simply because everybody else was in on it? Today we call that peer what? Peer pressure, we give in. Many times the crowd can be wrong. Now, many years ago, many pounds ago, I did this in high school. And we were at this um, cross-country invitational on the west side of Cleveland on Lake Erie called the Edgewater Cleveland Invitational. And now, if you run track, track is simple. You get on the track and you run laps, right? A 200 half a lap. A 400 is a full lap. You know, three eight laps. And it's very simple. But if you want to run cross-country, you have to walk the course because you don't know where you're going. And so many times they sent a map of the course and you walk the course once or twice. And for the Cleveland Edgewater Invitational, they made it simple. If there's a blue flag, turn right. If there's a red flag, turn left. And we pretty much knew the course. And about halfway through the race, we're going up this hill and I'm in 19th place. And I noticed there is a group in front of us that didn't understand the flag and they turned the wrong way. And those of us said, you're going the wrong way, going the wrong way, they didn't listen to us. And about eight went that way and the rest of us went the correct way. Now, nothing against them, but Due to that, I went from 19th to 12th, and I got a medal for the race, simply because they all turned the what? The wrong way. They all gave in to what they each thought was correct. You see, sometimes, friends in Christ, even though we know what's correct, sometimes, very often, we surrender to the crowd and we do what's what? What's wrong? That peer pressure there is just too strong. Now, in our small group Bible study, today we're talking about the wrong way. And many times the wrong way is defined by crowds and masses around us. So, there's a downside if a majority of people get it wrong. Why? Because none of us like to take it alone and be right. That's a very dangerous position by nature. We don't want to go against the grain of what everybody else says. But today we want to take aim at Jesus and what Jesus taught us. And what Jesus presents to us is truth, and Jesus with community. And finally, as you heard through these illustrations, as you, the question is, are you a person who would rather, are you a person who would rather be right and be alone, or be wrong and be with the crowd? What type of person are you? And has maybe your position changed as you matured and growed? Would you rather be wrong and be with everybody else, or be right and be alone? That sometimes is a lonely road. Well, our small group Bible study, Being Challenged. Why are we doing a small group Bible study? Because we all want a closer relationship with Jesus. So we're going to take the time to do that. And the sermons will accompany each theme. And so, of course, as you know, this week's theme is to commit to community. So Being Challenged a small group that we're doing now. We'll repeat it again in the fall. And Lord willing, we'll be out of COVID. And I think the groups will grow and people feel more comfortable. But it's definitely a way for a closer relationship with Jesus The author says and focuses on our habits. Small habits done over time produce what? Major results. If you don't snack at night after supper and you do that for many days, chances are you'll lose weight and won't gain weight. Little habits that we do over time produce major, major results. When I taught here many years ago, the kids had to be in their seat at 820. Not 821, not 822. They had to be in their seat before the bell began. And I found out that the kids knew if they were in their seat, I'd give them a recess. They found out that if they did little things correct and were able to discipline themselves, they could do better things and more things correct to be able to discipline themselves. So it's true. Small habits done over time produce what? Major results. Just like teaching a teenager how to drive safely. If you teach them where to put their feet, you know, how to look at the rear view mirror, and the side mirror, what to do. It produces major results later. Keystone habits are habits that we form that unintentionally carry over into other areas of our lives. The reason why we learned to run is it taught me perseverance and endurance. And it taught me teamwork. Why? They were habits that got carried over for the rest of my life. I know how to endure because I did it in training and running. And I'm sure that you have your own examples where habits that you've done, they unintentionally carry to other, other areas of our lives. Why is it so important that we teach children not to be tardy? Well, let me ask this question. Why are employers so much interested in the attendance of students in high school? Why is that so important to them if students aren't tardy to class? Why is that important if students aren't, are not being truants? Why? Because chances are, if I showed up to school on time and I had regular attendance, my employer know that I'd be faithful and show up to where? Work. Just little habits over time carry unintentionally into other areas of our lives. If we learn to be neat in our home, we'll be neat in our workplace. we we'll to be respectful with friends and adults. We're respectful for those around us. You know, I'm saying this in love. I'm not trying to be cute. There's a reason why I don't swear much. I don't think I'm a person who tends to be inclined to swear. I don't swear much because I serve in a what? And most people do not swear at church. They learn very godly language. That is a habit that I picked up from others, a blessing in community. So habits can bless us as we go through life. There's truth about that. Now, habits can become overbearing. Trying to deal with the crowd can become sometimes overbearing. But Jesus says this about himself. Can you read it with me? Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, learn your habits from me. Don't worry about the crowd. Take my yoke, take my habits. They're light and easy. I'm loving and graceful and forgiving and I'm accepting of others and I love you. You'll find rest for your soul with my habits. What I'm leading to is Christian community. So the first habit we want to talk about is committed to community, a group of people. Commit to community because Jesus committed to community. First called a group of people to be his disciples. Does anybody know how many disciples Jesus called? Say it. Before he did anything, he called 12 people. He got them on board with them. He formed a team. Where do we want to call it? So Jesus called 12 disciples who had messed up lives, who were sinners, who weren't complete, and he began to mold them and touch them and bless them, and they followed him. Oftentimes in the Bible, if we observe Jesus teaching someone or Jesus in conflict with someone, his disciples were with him, and Jesus was modeling that to them. So Jesus committed to community. At first, just the 12 disciples does anyone know how 11 of the 12 disciples died? how they die? Can you tell me? They were what? They were martyrs. So, community community. That's how much he impacted those 12 lives. So, Jesus is community to community. Then, Genesis 2.18, Jesus commits to community. He looked at Adam and said, It is not good for the man to be what? I'll make him a helper so he can procreate someone who's equal with him. So God understood that from the very beginning we had to be in community we need to be in relationships we need to be in companionship with one another. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to 14 we're the body of Christ. We belong together. We're a flock, we're a congregation. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian writer of the last century said Christianity can only be known and experienced with other people. It can't be a one-on-one. Sometimes I get this question, it's supposed to be philosophical. Well, can't I be a Christian in my home by myself? Well, yes, you can be. I mean, I guess you can. I don't have to come to church. Well, I guess if you really want to take that route. But why would you? Because God calls us to be in community, to be one with another. He calls us to be a body, a flock, a congregation, a holy people. So we're called together. That's where we learn and grow from one another. A call to community. Um, Proverbs 1320 says this. Can you read it with me? If you walk with the wise, you become wise. But a companion of fools suffers harms. Friends in Christ, it's true. Sooner or later we begin to act and form and wrap ourselves around people we hang out with. It's true. If we hang out with troublemakers, chances are we'll get in trouble ourselves. If we hang out with people who are godly and holy, chances are that's going to influence us. A dear friend of mine, he was called to his eternal home. He's a pastor. Last summer, uh, he was a chaplain in the United States Army. He was also the lead chaplain for the National Guard in Wisconsin. And later in life, he got a degree in uh, substance abuse counseling. And he said there's this one truth with substance abuse counseling. And it's a very difficult and painful thing in any one of us here. We can find ourselves addicted to something. It isn't for just people who live in the back alley. Any of us, it's a a terrible thing. We pray and love. Not to be judgmental, but he said this. We can take a person through treatment who's addicted to all forms of substances, but if they come out and they go right back to their same old friends and companions, guess what happens? They go right back into it. Just as important for the treatment they receive when they come out of treatment, they need to have a new group of friends and relationships. And friends in Christ, it's true. We walk with the wise, we become wise. Now, I'm not saying we can't have non-Christian friends or unbelieving family. We can influence them, but ultimately, we're influenced by those people. We touch and we grow wise by those people we hang out with. I often tell people kiddingly, if I seem smart, it's only because I hang out with smart people. All right? It's true. That's what Harvard says. A Harvard professor said this, 95% of our success or failure in life is determined by the people we habitually associate with. Our success or failure, many times by people we associate with. They did did some research about very successful athletes. And what they found out about very successful athletes, you'll find this interesting, is very successful athletes were put on teams where there were a lot of other very successful athletes, and they learned how to compete at a very high level. Very rarely does a very successful athlete carry their team. Most of the times, very successful athletes are put on teams with very other talented and gifted athletes, and they mature and grow together. The other thing interesting about research about professional athletes is that they're always put in an age range right below the cutoff date. So if it's like an 18 and under league while well, I'm playing with a team that's like 17 years and nine months old. But notice, success and failure many times is determined by people we what? We hang out with even true and professional athletes, committed to community. Schwab did a modern wealth uh, wealth survey. You'll find this interesting. And he surveyed young and middle-aged families, how they spend their money. And sadly, what he found out, and I think you know it, um, and even for me and my wife at times, we spent money to keep up with the Joneses, right? We sometimes spent money uh, to do things our friends were doing or maybe to impress them. And what Schwab found out is that many times younger and middle-aged families didn't look at a financial plan, what's best for me for giving to others or what's best for me for my retirement or what's best for my financial package. They looked at it, not all, they looked at it, what's best for me to get along with my peers. Now, Dave Ramsey said it best. Most people spend money they don't have to impress people who don't like them anyways. I'll say it again. Most people spend money they don't have to impress people who don't like them anyways. So even Shab found out the power of community. But you and I, we are called into community. And Jesus committed to community. When Jesus rose from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us the Lord appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time. Notice he didn't go find skeptics or unbelievers. He went to brothers and sisters in Christ and say, I'm here. My word is true. He committed to, to community. Then Luke 10:1, the Lord appointed 72 and sent them out two by two to every town and place. First it started with 12, then it grew to 72, and he sent them out always with a pair that they can uh, be a witness together, as the Old Testament says. Notice a commitment to community. And Jesus called 12 disciples at transfiguration. I was Last week I was at my granddaughter's um, Evangeline's baptism. So the transfiguration Sunday was last Sunday, Jesus had an inner three. James, John, and Peter, they had messy lives like us, and Jesus cared for them. He took them with him, that they might see the transfiguration. He always takes people with him. He's committed to community. So whether it was 500, 12, 72, two or three, they're all called believers, and they follow Jesus in community. So let me ask you, is your community pointing you closer to Jesus or further away from Jesus? And once again, I'm saying you can't have non-Christian friends or non-Christian family members, but where does your inner community, is it influencing you for the better or for the worse? I'm not saying you can't be friends with them. What I am saying is be part of a community that draws you closer to Jesus. So who is your 500, your 12, your 3, or even your 2? Who are those people? They draw you closer or further away? Um, my life is, uh, is God constantly surrounding me by people. Whether I was attending a Lutheran elementary school, um, whether my youth group that had 20, 25 kids in it. At the seminary, there was 200 brothers like me studying to become pastors. And they were all communities. As a matter of fact, I'm blessed because I go to a church, there's a, a community of 500. There's always believers here. Even our small group Bible studies, even my confirmation class. Little community of believers. Communities together. I hope and pray that God is surrounding you with communities, whether you're involved in a small group or another Bible study, you're in a ministry group, you're friends with fellow believers who pray and care for each other. Be in community where God builds us up, where God strengthens us, um, where we're united together. And once again, uh, that will influence us and bless us and even bless those who aren't part of that community. God will bring them into one time. So with that in mind, can you read this with me? Ecclesiastes 4.9. Two people are better than one, for they can help each other succeed. It's true in a community. True. Let's talk about one more number. One, so God's at the center of our lives. God is in Christ. He's at the center of our community's lives. That's what brings us here, that we know Jesus died and rose for us. And his cross made that possible because all peoples in community, we're sinners and we have messed up lives, but God calls us together to love even beyond our sin and our mistakes and our errors and who we aren't. And by his grace, he keeps us in the inner circle, his grace. Matter of fact, his grace is given here in the Lord's Supper. And we call it what? Holy communion, a common union. His grace keeps us in his circle. And in baptism, we are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, much like um, my granddaughter's baptism last week and we have another baptism here, two baptisms here next week They'll we brought into a circle, the community of believers there. Jesus committed community by his grace. He calls us into community, into a family. What a blessing that is. So how about this for a closing thought? Can you read it with me? Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. And... All God's people say, Amen.